right, everyone. Welcome to the Calling Vision, where we explore and honor the idea that your vision has selected you and is inviting you to bring it in form. And when you choose to align and partner with that vision, you can change the world. This is Stevie Harding, your host, and today I have as my guest, Mark Packard. Welcome, Mark. Hi. So happy to be here, Vivi. Always great to talk to you. Oh, same here, Mark. So Mark has a unique perspective on looking at the world. You know, he has a background. You're going to love this, everybody. He has a background in mathematics, economics, audio production, music, and dance. He also has a passion for creating mental health awareness. He's won at all of this and is now the director and force behind number three productions with the goal of amplify your voice and disrupt the world. I know Mark from my affiliations with Grace Point Publishing, and one of the things that I've experienced is his passion for supporting people, getting their message out there. He has been the behind-the-scenes guy for several of the authors to create podcasts and audiobooks. He's been a valuable resource for me as I've dipped my toes into the purview of his work. Mark has commitment to excellence that has earned him consecutive nominations for Podcaster of the Year in 2022 and 2023. These nominations from the Publisher Podcast Award are alongside other creators like Marvel, Amazon, and Penguin Random House. So again, welcome, Mark, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Stevie. Yeah. So, Mark, I'm going to start off with this question. You, you know, quite a very background. And I can't help but notice personally that you definitely have things that are typically ascribed to like left brain, a very mm-hmm. logical level value, and then the right brain, which is, you know, very creative. And so there's some things that I'm curious about. Um, I'm also aware that uh, you grew up in a military family. Mm-hmm. And based on my own experience of growing up in a military family, that lifestyle didn't exactly lend itself to creative development. So I'm wondering if you'd be willing to take a few minutes to show how you came to know and follow your creative side. Yes, for sure. Um, so it's fun you mentioned on the military part because, yeah, my dad is uh, he's a retired general. I was the vice dean of the Air Force Academy, so I definitely had a very military upbringing. Uh, it was less strict, though, than a lot of military kids I saw growing up. Uh, and I was also very fortunate because my mom always encouraged the creative side. Um, I started being in like little local fun productions for kids when I was probably four or five years old. And since then, I was always involved in some kind of play. I started playing piano when I was 10. Again, I think at my mom's encouragement, um, me and my three siblings all played and I was the only one though who who stuck with it <laughs> until I was about 18. So I, I do think that a big part of my military upbringing is what led me to pursue the econ and the math side, that more left brain side. Um, but when I look back at my pursuits of left brain academics, it always came from a creative right brain side. So I approached the left brain with my right brain might be one way to say that. Um, one of my favorite mathematical concepts is it's uh, Euler's equation. And the equation is e to the negative i pi plus one equals zero. And it has a lot of applications in mathematics, none of which I could tell you anymore. Um, but I always remember the equation um, because it summarizes so many amazing math concepts 
like e and pi and imaginary numbers and one and negative one and zero inequality. But it does it. And like, if you look at it, it's just this one little precise, concise equation. And it's a very creative thing. So when I started kind of looking at math in that way, I realized that while we tend to think of math and the traditional heavy handed, always accurate concepts like math and science and chemistry and economics and biology, they're actually just as much of a creative approach as dance and music creation and, and drawing and painting and any other creative aspects. So uh, there's a lot of nuances to that journey for sure. But while I was in college, I studied math and econ and I minored in dance. And I think studying all that at the same time allowed me to fuse those two sides of uh, my approach to creativity together. Wow. I'm sitting there going, okay, yeah, that's a great equation, whatever the hell I mean. <laughs> that's how I feel. I was like, I don't remember what it does. I just remember it looks really pretty when it's written on paper. <laughs> yeah, I can remember my younger brother is kind of a mathematical genius. And I can remember one time, and I was the kind of person that, you know, struggled to do two plus two. And um, anyway, uh, I can remember him saying to me one day, I need for you to help me prove this equation. That one does not equal one. And I go, really? I could tell you a fun story on that, too. It's something I learned in my math classes that has honestly framed my philosophy of life since then, if you'd like to hear it. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I thought I thought you might. So I know we're not. You won't see the video, but I'll show you, BB, on my arm. I just got a tattoo for my birthday. It says two plus one equals zero. And that wow. is actually a mathematical truth. Um so there's this concept in mathematics called uh, modular. It's modular math. I only remember the modular addition part of it. Um, and the easiest way I explain it to people is if you have a 12-hour clock and it's 1 o'clock and you add 12 to 1, it's 1 o'clock again. So in, that would be working in modular 13, actually, I think. In that case, 12 or 1 plus 12 equals 1, even though as we would, we would never say that with anything else. 1 plus 12 equals 13. So two plus one equals zero if you're working in modular three. So it's a three number set. That's the only numbers that exist in this little universe is zero, one, and two. And it goes around in a cyclical fashion. So if you have two and you only have zero, one, and two, and you add one to two, it circles back to zero. So in that case, two plus one equals zero. And when I learned that, I was like, so two plus two doesn't equal four all the time? it like rocked my whole world because I was like, that's the one truth I know is two plus two always equals four. And then my professor was like, well, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can remember when they came out with quote, the new math unquote. And, mm -hmm. and it was always, a, well, on a base 10, that's the answer, but on a base 10, that's not. And it right. was like, yep. well, whatever the hell. Um, <laughs> because back, I wasn't in school at that time. Mm -hmm. I was helping a friend file you know, do this, and it was, and she said, well, I know how to do this math thing. Can you help? And I'm going, well, I don't know. But um, it was an interesting concept that, you know, you could have base whatever, and that mm -hmm. changes the output of everything. Yep. Um, yeah, so I like that. Two plus one equals zero. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, here are a few things that you'll notice in your bio that um, I thought I wanted to talk to you about. So I noticed that for you, you used a term in your bio that to me appeals to the energetic qualities of what you do. And what you said there was um, Mark's focus is on creating beautiful audio for the listener. 
by focusing on the sub, you know, the, what is it? I'm saying subtitles, and I know that's not the word. Um, the subtlety is so clear that mm-hmm. I can line the picture and capturing the rhythm of the human voice. And when I read that, I said, wow, that seems like a pretty profound statement. And it seems to me that it'd be something that would reach deep into your soul and is a core guiding principle for you. And I'm curious if that resonates with you. Do you agree with that or not? I do. I, I will say I always laugh when people read my bio. I did a webinar about three weeks ago and they read my whole bio out loud and I was sitting there. I was like, did I did I write that? I don't remember putting all those words in there. That sounds really good, though. I guess I, that's cool. Um, but th- that piece is very, very true to how I think how I've just approached life in, in general. I've always been very nuanced and looking into details of things and like diving deep into the details, like getting to the surface detail and then seeing what's three levels below that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that philosophy comes from, and it might it might be in the bio I sent you. I don't know if it's in there. I might've taken it out, but there's a uh, Seth MacFarlane. Uh, he's a pretty famous creator. He's probably best known for the show Family Guy, but he's done a lot of stuff. Um, and he's done a lot of controversial things too. Um, so I always like to preface that. Um, but his approach to creativity, he, he said once in an interview, is he always does his, his animated shows with live orchestration, um, even though it would be much cheaper and faster and more efficient to just use you know studio samples and studio sounds. And it, nobody would really be able to tell the difference. And he said he always uses live music and live orchestra because he knows it sounds better to him, which means that on a nuanced level, it will sound better to the the listener and the watcher and the consumer as well. And I think I probably heard that when I was 24 or 25, and that did really have a big impact on my approach to creation after that. Um, Now, I'll let you know too, I have had to step back some of my more perfectionistic uh, places because it, it can take a long time to produce audio at that level and it makes it not very accessible for some people to come on board and do an audio book or a podcast because most people will take six hours to finish a finished hour. If I get super into my details, I'll take 12 hours on it and it just becomes a a little too excessive for most people. Um, But I do think that when you get into those details, like removing a background noise that I've played maybe for somebody and they're like, I don't even hear the noise in there, but I still take it out because somewhere I think in the subconscious, you're still processing on that quality level. And I also think that the rhythm of the human voice is so, so important. Um, I noticed that when I first started editing podcasts, that those were a lot of the cuts I was making was to push words together or take them further apart because the rhythm wasn't quite there. Um, And I think that comes from my music and dance background of you don't really count, you know, the dialogue of a 30 minute podcast episode in terms of one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. But internally, I still feel the rhythm of those words. So it, it, it is an energetic thing. Like I couldn't tell somebody else to like take this audio and this is where you should cut the words to match the rhythm but i feel where the rhythm's at and i cut it until it sounds like it's matching some kind of rhythm yeah and i was going to say it seems to me like there was something that um i think you did a pretty good job explaining that right now but i was like i wouldn't even be surprised if it was more difficult to explain to people you know what it is that you do and how you do it um and i really liked you know, it felt deep to me. I mean, really deep. Like it's a commitment that you put on the inside of you about, you know, how you want to present things. It really is deep in there. Yeah. Um, and, and if I may, I'll loop it back a bit kind of to that, that military upbringing is, um, 
So my dad has, like I said, a retired general. He has like four, I think four degrees. And he might have more, I don't know. <laughs> but he definitely was very, um, very detail oriented, very much like uh, as far as I knew as a child growing up, very much like a perfectionist, like he does it right every time. And I very much like embodied that and took it in. And then I realized uh, in, in my mid to late 20s, uh, I went through a lot of life changes and a lot of soul searching, a lot of internal, I uh, did a lot of internal work. And I realized that, there was a place where the perfectionism was actually causing a detriment to my own one, my own mental health, but also even to the things I was working on because at a certain, nothing in life is perfect. Um, I like to look at perfection uh, just like infinity, like infinity is a really cool concept, but nothing we can really understand. And I think perfection is the same. It's kind of something we can maybe strive for, but there's no such thing because perfection is subjective. Um, so I realized that I, I couldn't actually have a perfect project. I couldn't make everything perfect. So I was able to kind of step back a little bit and say, okay, well, it's, it's good enough. Like it's, I think it's really good. I'm, I'm happy with it. I feel good about it. I could keep working on it, but if I did, I'm going to be a hundred by the time I actually finish this project. So we're going to just have, at some point, you just got to say, we're going to sign off on this and it's good to go. Yep. I can appreciate that. I, I went through my own thing about perfectionism and mm-hmm. it's like okay well bring it because that might not work <laughs> yeah exactly exactly <laughs> well you know if you um you know leaned into your more creative side mm-hmm. um are you would you be able to say something like you know wow i experienced certainty about what i was going to be doing this i just always knowing that i'm doing really right things or is it something that, you know, you had to start leaning into and settle into and accept? And then, you know, if it was more of the second part, you know, we had to lean into it. How did you experience and create the confidence that you were doing the right thing? Oh, that, that's a deep question. I, I have to think on that a little bit. Um, I think I could tell you that as I, if I look back kind of on like the, the big pieces of my more, if we use creative journey um, because going back to math and heavy sciences if everything's creative then it's all been a creative journey um, but first big piece was when I played I played piano for about eight years like I, I like I played it for probably 10 but for about eight years I was very serious about it um, I also then I switched into college and I was very serious about my math and econ studies and at the same time I was dancing and I danced before and after college uh, semi-professionally after college. So I did that for a total dance for about eight years, very, you know, focused on dance. And then I did music creation for about three years. Um, and then there was a gap. I got married. I had a child. I moved into managing a restaurant, which, which if I may, for me was not a creative aspect at all. It was, it was, I, some people love, love management. I, I got so bored. <laughs> so I kind of had like a creative break there, unfortunately. And then after those five years, I came on to Grace Point Publishing, number three productions, and that really kind of re-sparked my creativity. So that's just kind of an overview of the journey. And I say that journey because if I look back to each of those pieces, I can see very, remember specific times where it felt right. Um, like there were, when I, uh, and when I played the piano, I went out and I bought uh, for Elise, I bought the sheet music for it. And I just played it for, I think about five hours until I, I basically had it memorized. And that was a moment where I was like, I'm gonna play the piano forever. And then uh, when I stopped playing the piano, didn't go forever. And I danced. There are definitely moments I can think of dancing. There was one in the studio I taught in 
um, where I was just there with a friend and just was very in my body and very moving. And that was a moment where I was like, this is, this is right. This is, this is my creative place. Um, then when I started making music and uh, again, and I actually was making hip hop music um, and I was writing the lyrics and producing the music and doing every piece of it. Uh, I will say that probably in my creative journey, that's what's always felt the most right to me is the production and the creation of music. Um, and then now it's when there's just little moments when I'm producing a podcast or producing an audio book. And normally it's when I get that cut and I'm like, okay, that sounds just right. Um, and it's a very similar feeling to when I studied math, if I was struggling to figure out an equation or a concept, I'd have almost like in my head, like this giant wall up and I'd be like swimming towards that wall. And I'd get so frustrated because I couldn't get through. And then all of a sudden, like the, the math concept would click and I just go right over the wall. And it was like just the rush of euphoria. And so that rush of euphoria, are the moments I tend to get in the creative processes. So I think, I guess to answer it is, is both of those are correct. There are moments where I have known where I'm like, this is, this is right. Um, and there's a lot of moments where I've questioned myself, especially when I was kind of in the starving artist place of like, what am I doing this for? This is not worth it. Um, I think I'll use somebody else's advice on it. I think that really, again, was a big catalyst point for me in understanding the, the creative journey. Um, well, actually, I'll use two, if that's all right. So there was the, the great Martha Graham. Um, there's a quote from her where she was talking to the, the creator and choreographer of the musical Oklahoma. And he, he told her it was like a huge accomplishment for him, right? To kind of set the scene. He had just, he had been struggling, struggling, struggling. He finally broke through. He had this, this, this nationally known musical that had incredible reception. And he was talking to Martha Graham. He said, Martha, like, I don't know what to do. I did this. I thought I accomplished it all. And I still don't feel like I did enough. And Martha, she had a long, beautiful quote, but the essence of it is, inside every creative there's this slight unsatisfaction that we're never satisfied with our product it's just like this quiet beat that keeps us moving forward and forward and forward and i think that's I, I, that for me has always stood out for the creative journey is this like acceptance of that it, i will never feel it's good enough and instead of struggling with that trying to to internalize it like that's just part of the process and I think that's maybe what gets me from one moment of euphoria to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. Um, yeah. Yep. I think that's where I'm at with it. <laughs> All right. right. The question comes out of that. How were you able to discern that, that I'm, you know, not deeply satisfied, though, here comes the next shiny object versus here comes the next grand idea? For me to pursue or the next invitation from the universe to pursue a different direction how do you distinguish the two i think that it's been a lot of just life or if we use uh, the the universe has kind of directed a lot of that flow um now some of the choices i've made consciously but some of them have just kind of happened the best example is when i came from restaurant management to doing what i'm doing now um, my my mother was friends with Michelle, who is the owner of Grace Point Publishing, and my mom was like, hey, Michelle needs an admin assistant. And I had actually switched back to serving tables at that point and had kind of honestly settled in. So, well, I gave my creative career a good shot. It didn't work out, but this is okay. I can do this. Like I had kind of come to peace with it. And then I applied to be an administrative assistant uh, with Michelle and Grace Point Publishing. 
And then when I came on, that was the goal was after a year that I would start running podcasts and audiobooks. And so that's what brought me back into it. And that's one where I feel like it was like, it almost felt like it fell into my lap. Like the universe was like, fuck, there you go. You can have some creativity back. Um, and I'll also say to you, because I think your question was, how do I like know when it's like right to make that move? And I, I don't feel like I ever know. I, I, it seems like I, what happens is I think about it, think about it, think about it for like two years. And then uh, I guess that's not the right way. I do know, but it's not like I know because I wrote it down on paper and I did all the pros and cons. The final thing is it's just like an internal feeling where like, okay, I've thought about this long enough and now I'm going to move in this direction. That's what's going to happen. And that's how all my big decisions in life have been made. That lead up, lead up, lead up, research, research, research. And then at some point it just feels like it clicks and I make that next movement. Kind of like waking up one day and just knowing, oh yeah, this is the next step. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And not, yeah. not, this is the final step ever, or this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Cause I always thought that's what it was going to be as I'd wake up and be like, okay, I figured it out. This is the creative path. And now I'm realizing I'm just going to wake up and be like, okay, now that's the next place to go. That's the next big project or whatever it happens to be. But, I mean, just since you've been involved with Grace Point, mm-hmm. um, you know, your, your path, your creative path has really unfurled in some interesting directions. I mean, you're helping people do podcasts now, but I mm-hmm. don't think you were doing beforehand. That yet could be wrong on that. Then you're you're helping people do their audio books. Um, what other things have kind of quote dropped into your lap unquote in the process of you know waking up every day and saying okay, I'm working for Face Right Through, you know, um, number three production. The biggest thing that kind of got well, there, there's two pieces of things that have come out of coming into this journey. So you're pretty much right on the podcast. Right before I came to Grace Point, what really re-sparked my creativity is I started working with my mom on her podcast and I composed the theme song for it. Um, and so that kind of brought it back. But that's been, um, like, I do love, I love producing podcasts and audiobooks, and I love being behind the virtual boards. Like I don't have an actual mixing board or space, but you know, my, my computer uh, editing programs, I love being there and playing with all the plugins like uh, a sound engineer would. I, I, that's one of my favorite things. It's a beautiful combination of uh, math and art because it, it just fuses so perfectly. Um, but the side thing that's come out of producing podcasts is I've done... I think third. How many? I think I've done eleven podcasts now, and I've done ten of those. I've composed the themes for, which I didn't expect. So I've still got to work with music in there. Um, but the coolest project I've had that really did get dropped in my lap is with uh, Karen Curry Parker. I've got to create. Um, I think we ended up doing thirty-two variations of binaural and bilateral sounds based on studies Karen has done on solfeggio frequencies. And like, that was just, um, when I did that, that was the first time I'd probably really felt like in that big creative element since when I was producing music for myself. And when Karen sent me that project, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, let's just do this all the time. That sound, and it was amazing. It was such an amazing process. And it was a learning process too, because it, it was music creation, uh, but it was very different than the music I created in the past. So there was a, there was a lot of learning I got to do to go along with it as well. So are there any particular practices that you use for yourself that you would say help keep you aligned with, you know, your vision that's calling you? Honestly, the, the biggest thing I do that keeps me aligned, because if I like, 
let's see, I was in a place where I, I didn't need money and I could just do any type of creative project I wanted to that came to my place. I would just be sitting in front of with my keyboard and maybe like a drum pad or something beside me and just like playing like all day long with just putting music and moving it around and just arranging it. And nothing might actually ever get done <laughs> um, because that's like, if I get in my flow, I'm just like, it really is. It's just play. That's what I say to myself. I'm like, oh, let's play with that. Let's try that concept. But then what happens is um, in order to do kind of the, the business side of it, I, I have to produce something at some point. Um, so I, I use a, a lot of checklists and I use a lot of timers. Um, and now that might sound counterintuitive to how most of us would look at staying in the creative flow, but that's what keeps my focus going of like, okay, this is my list of things I need to do to finish this project. Did I get all these things done? And then within those checklists, I allow myself to be more creative, right? Like uh, it might be a checklist item of just something like edit podcast dialogue. That might be one thing of producing a podcast, but when I'm editing the dialogue, I stay in that flow of finding the rhythm and taking out the pieces I need to take out and enhancing the pieces I need to enhance and mixing the music in and all those pieces of it. Um, but in order to not get completely lost in that and wake up from my, my beautiful creative face six hours later and be like, oh, the deadline was four hours ago, those timers and checklists kind of keep me on point. Um, I think, and that's how I've kind of always approached creativity is there's a lot of emotional and energy and feeling inside for sure. But when it comes out, it comes out in a very analytical approach to the creative process. Yeah, I can, I can, um, feels like I can grasp that because I, I know I, I call it getting in the zone. And it's like, once mm -hmm. I'm in the zone, you know, don't touch me, man. Um, I'm in the zone and it's like whatever happens, happens. And right. I know that I stay with it for hours, mm -hmm. uh, you know, while I'm in, in that space. And um, and then every time, once in a while, I have to remember, oh, yeah, you got to get up and take a little step around the plate there um, and what have you. All right, I want to ask you this question because I don't understand it. Okay. <laughs> Next question. You've got your mission statement on your website. It says, number three productions amplifies voices by changing and moving beyond the model of traditional distribution to be a leader in the creation of the new creator economy I said resources to disrupt our world. And, you know, I read that and I go, oh, that's, that's a nice word. But, you know, it's like, so how do you define a greater economy and disrupting the world and traditional distribution? So I was wondering if you could share more about what exactly that means for you. I 100% can. And I'm going to pull it up because I wrote that mission statement a while back and I, I don't remember. I saw I'll take it piece by piece. So amplifying voices. Um, that one's pretty obvious that the goal is to get people's voices out into the world. Um, but my personal goal has is to get the voices of people who one, maybe don't get amplified as much uh, people in, in, in lesser uh, published groups, uh, BIPOC community, LGBTQ plus uh, community to help amplify voices in marginalized groups, but also to help amplify voices in people who don't have the, the money to break into that market. Um, because unless you're willing to take the time to learn even simple audio production, like to create an audio book um, or to make a podcast to some degree. And I know you can attest to this a little bit, BB. You didn't just sit down and press record and bam, you had a podcast. It takes, even if it's not like a, a super high-end NPR or Wondery podcast, it takes a little time. 
and you either need the time or the money behind it. And some people don't have either. Um, so that's kind of what it goes into of moving beyond the model of traditional distribution. When I think traditional distribution, um, what I really think of there, and, and it bleeds over into the audiobook world, uh, not as much the podcast world, but I think of uh, music music distribution. And I would say that in the music world and in the audiobook is starting to follow suit. Uh, we've broken down a lot of what I would call an economics barriers to entry um, of just, it used to be really, really hard to get your music on the radio, right? And they had the whole payola scheme and pay to play and you know $100,000 just to get somebody to even listen to a single on there. So if you were a garage band, you had almost no shot in terms of statistics of making it big. And then um, with the, the the presence of online distribution, like with Napster taking out all the pirating parts of it, if anyone's opinions on that, it, it allowed for underground artists to get their music distributed for essentially free. And at this point, actually, any musician can get their music on Spotify uh, and not pay anything for it um, to actually have it distributed. I mean, there's the cost to make the music, but to get it distributed, there's lots of services that you can just upload your music and they'll take like a 10% royalty cut, um, which is unheard of, like that you would keep 90% of the royalties you make. Now on the flip side, Spotify pays about a 10th of a cent per stream. Uh, most people say so there's still that problem. Um, so that's what I would like to see happen with audiobooks as well is moving beyond that model of right now we see ACX. ACX is owned by Amazon. Um, and they control Audible and Amazon audiobooks and have a really big play in Apple audiobooks. And I think last time I looked, ACX is up responsible for 60% of audiobook consumption. Um, and they pay very, very small royalties. So that's that's the piece of traditional distribution I'm trying to get away from. It's just to make it more equitable to get people who are able to uh, or have been unable in the past to get their book out there for an audiobook out there, a podcast out there, a music out there to be able to get it out there and have a chance at least of, of making something off of it and to have the royalty system more equitable. Um, right now, Spotify is paying if people buy an audiobook from us for $10, they pay us $5. So that's gotten a lot more equal for sure, um, but it still has some work to do. And that's that's what's like in the back of my mind when I'm not kind of in the weeds of the production of like, how can we make this faster, make it more efficient and still produce great audio to still have people do it, uh, be able to amplify their voices. And then let's see, what else did I say? To be a leader in the creation. That's just, I mean, that's just a big goal. I do want to be a leader in there. And I think we are, there's a lot of other people trying to disrupt as well. And I'm really glad we get to be a part of that process. Um, and that's the new creator economy. What I, I mean, who knows what the new creator economy is going to, going to, be and I kind of I kind of took that when I wrote it from the gig economy right like from DoorDash and Uber Eats and we were seeing all of that during the pandemic and um if I get on my soapbox a little bit about it that that's a whole nother thing where I felt like at first it was an opportunity for people to work as contractors and really be on their own schedule and make their own money then we started seeing stories about DoorDash not really paying very fairly and drivers being very frustrated with the process and I did DoorDash for six months so I can attest to that um, but I think it was another step in the right direction of independence for people. And I think that's what we're hopefully going to start seeing uh, in the creative world as well, is people are going to become more independent, do things like maybe uh, not distributing your audiobook through Audible. Some big authors have already done that, and you can only get the audiobook on that author's website. That means you're not going to hit a USA Today bestseller list. 
but it does mean that the the creator of that book needs to keep 100% of the royalties. And uh, I think that that's really what we're going to start seeing over the next few years is more and more of people not working with the giants like Amazon and even Spotify or SoundCloud or iTunes and doing a lot more independent work and working within, uh, I'll say local community, but local, I mean like a small community, maybe it's in six different countries, but like a small community of creators that are working together instead of with a giant corporation. Uh, Yeah. And and allows the community to have the experience of supporting each other. Mm -hmm. But I'm also hearing in here. Is that part of what your intention is on this? Is to, create, to create the communities that support each other and get their voice out there into the world? Yeah, that's very much my goal. Now, now it's one of those things that, like many great ideas, sounds great in theory. And then when you start adding real world elements into it, it, it doesn't work as well. Uh, I think it was Einstein said, as far as the laws of mathematics refer to reality, they're not certain. And as far as they're certain, they don't refer to reality. And I think that's true uh, in a lot of places. <laughs> and I think it's true with this too. So like, if I could paint like a perfect picture, what I almost imagine is like in, in my head that the pictures of like an older farming community uh, of just like a, a small local community that shared and helped each other out, right? Like if, if your if your wheat farm went down, and like the crops completely got destroyed, but your neighbor's wheat farm was fine. Well, they'd probably help you out with the little wheat so you had food to eat. And then the reverse would be true the next one. Now, mm-hmm. if we look at the farming communities uh, a long time ago, and now there, there's still a lot of problems wrapped up in there for sure. But I think it's that that shared resources concept, not in the like everybody gets the exact same amount type thing, but of like, hey, I, I'm really good at audio engineering. Hey, you're really good at graphic design. Hey, you should do the cover for my audio book and I'll do the audio for it and we'll put it up together. And I mean, that's kind of how it works already. Um, but it tends to always, from what my experience a lot of times, get wrapped under a bigger umbrella of production where there's all these other little people who are having an, an input in it. And instead of it being more of a streamlined process of more people just working together as a community and then sharing the profits that come out of it, um, it's almost like cutting out the middleman, right? Like just going straight to the supplier rather than bringing in all the middle salesmen into it. And uh, I don't have the answer for it, but that's kind of where my vision is, is that community of shared creative resources. Um, I just don't know how to make it sustainable. That's not a right? Yeah. So one of the questions I have around this and listening to you is that you're in an industry that is changing quickly. You know, there's new features, there's new things. I mean, we were talking just before we started this about you having, uh, I forget what you called it, a, a D something or other. Oh, a D, uh, a D, D, D noiser, yeah. Yeah, D noiser and what have you. How do you determine that the new things are things that you could pursue versus, you know, put them on the back shelf for now? You, for I, example, do you align them with your vision, or I, I feel like that's it's such a narrow line to to walk. Honestly, is so I've heard stories about like ChatGPT. We were talking about that before. That a lot of the ways that these AI services, I don't know if ChatGPT specifically, but some of these machine learning type algorithms. Uh, they they source what they make through unethical means. Um, a really great example of it is about, I want to say it was a year ago, it might have been 18 months ago, uh, Google Books came out with this thing where they were like, hey, upload your ebook, we'll give you an AI voice on it, and we'll put it on the Google Audio Bookstore for free. 
And it was like, sounded like, and it was actually a great deal, just like that by itself. And then what came out about six months ago, so about a year maybe after Google announced all this, is that Google was creating all these AI voices by training them on narrators, right? On multiple, I don't know the number, but a lot of audiobook narrators and not paying the narrator anything for it, just basically scraping the data and training these AI voices based on other narrators' voices. And the narrators were a little upset about that. We're like, you can't just take, that's my, that's my voice. Um, so I, and, and, you know, I, I, when that came out, I was going to put one of our books up on there just as a test. We ended up not doing it. And now I'm glad I didn't do it because it was an unethical practice by Google. I believe it was an unethical practice by Google to do that. But if I had done it, then I, I didn't have that information. Nobody had that information because it was hidden behind Google's balls and then just came out. So I think that's where you have to walk the fine line on one side of just really going with a bit of your intuition of like, does this seem like it's okay? Um, another, I mean, and another big thing I'll look at if I'm going to use a tool, of course, is it effective or not? Um, I've definitely played with like some free trials um, to try to make my audio editing faster and it just doesn't do me any good. So that just goes right out the window. Um, one big thing I do look at now, and I think it's, partially because of that whole, I want to be more efficient because if we're more efficient, it takes less time to do things, which means we can charge a little bit less. That's the opposite of, I think, how a business is supposed to work. I think you're supposed to keep charging more, but I'm trying to charge a little bit less. I hope Michelle's not listening to this right now. Uh, <laughs> but to just bring the cost down and still, of course, you know, keep the lights on. And that's what I think AI is, AI as an umbrella term is really doing for us is if we use it and its current state, it can be used to really increase efficiency of creation um, and not just in audio in any place. Um, but then I was at a podcast conference in Denver this last year uh, in August. It was in August, so was it four, four months ago? And there was somebody from one of the bigger AI voice and video creation services. And he was talking about how they had... Um, it was one of the women's World Cup soccer games. They had their video cameras out there. Their video cameras were able to automatically hit like the most important part of the match going on, capture information from that moment, translate it into an AI voice and broadcast it live on their network faster than the commentators were able to. And while like on a techie side, I'm like, that is so cool. On a real world side, I'm like, that's, that could have definitely be used for negative purposes as well. So that's, I think, my kind of where you get into the big level of it is we have to ask the question of, okay, this is a great tool I can use. What, what, how do we keep it from being used in a negative way? And I'll, I'll finalize that thought kind of with that uh, one thing I'm playing with internally right now, uh, not internally within me, but internally within our production is using AI voices, of, obviously with permission, um, but I've played with creating an AI clone of my voice and it's surprisingly accurate. And hmm. if there's a way to create audiobooks with AI voices, that could be really, really great. And I look at that in terms of, again, marginalized communities, places that don't have access to audiobooks, large places of the world that, that are illiterate and can't read, that really increases their knowledge base. And that, that tends to equalize more of the world and, and provide more equity. I feel knowledge is power. But on the flip side, you can also use that AI audio voice to make Donald Trump argue with Frank Sinatra if you want. <laughs> I haven't seen that, but I'm sure somebody's done that at this point. 
So there's, I mean, there's, there's a lot there for sure, but that's kind of how I look at it. I was like, okay, number one, if it doesn't work for me, I'm not going to use it. And then number two is just really trying to look at one, the ethics of how they're able to create that software. And if I'm willing to risk any possible future ethical uh, complications as well. All right. That's a pretty detailed answer. <laughs> <laughs> I get lost in the details. Yeah, well, there's a lot of things to take into consideration. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just a case of, you know, looking for the idea. Um, you know, let's also take into consideration, you know, what's the thing that's behind the scenes and how they're created, which mm-hmm. is, um, you know, different things. So one of the things that you thought, you know, you're, I would say that the epitome of the work that you're doing is your statement about amplifying voices and disrupting the world. Do, do you agree that that's the epitome of your work? It's it's the epitome of the goal behind the work. Um, it's definitely, that's been a big part of my personal learning curve over the last, let's see, it's 2023. So two, it's been two years since I've really, it was September 2021 as when like number three productions like had a name and like I really started getting into, I'm only doing audio within the company. Um, and on that, the learning curve over those two years and a few months has really been looking at, okay, how do we get this mission to happen and still make enough money that, you know, everybody is, has a sustainable lifestyle that we, that works with us. And, and there's definitely a, a fine line to walk there. But I think that if I look at from where we started and I look at the prices and the accessibility from where we started, which was, I think we were doing 6,000 for an audio book for a 50,000 word audio book. And I've been able to get that down. The last one we did was 2,500 for an audio book. Now the caveat there is that it did come with a bit of a sacrifice in, um, in quality. And I use quotation marks there, not quality in terms of like, it was a lesser audio book, but in terms of, I had to start thinking of with those nuances we were talking about earlier, what can I stop doing that really doesn't make a difference in the final product? Because at the level I was editing, it was getting to a point where it was only like, people with a lot of money would be able to access that. And so Michelle and I actually had a long talk about the 80-20 rule of what 20% can I cut out to still keep it 80% great, which to most of the world is still going to sound great so we can get more people to create more audiobooks. And I think finding that balance has been a really great process and able to help amplify more voices out there because I do think Generally, the more voices that are able to be heard, the more we break down those barriers, the more we can disrupt the world. So short answer is yes, it still is very much behind the goal of all my work. When you talk about disrupting the world, what in particular are you talking about? I mean, there are a lot of things that we could talk about in disrupting the world. Um, I I do feel like we are in a very big tipping point place. And I, I don't know, we were talking a little bit about human design before we started. I know that 2027 is going to be a big year from the human design predictions. I couldn't talk any more about that, but that seems to align with what I'm watching in the world of that. We, the, the more, this is again, soapboxy. So this is my, my opinion, not necessarily those are number three productions than its affiliates. Um, but we have seen, over uh, a lot of uh, our history, we've seen a lot of inequality. We've seen a lot of patriarchal domination. We've seen a lot of white race domination, um, where a lot of marginalized races that actually aren't marginalized have been discriminated against and pushed down and stomped on. 
And I think a lot of that has come from the ability to hold knowledge back. Um, I think that's, that's one of the biggest ways that people who have used power for not good purposes and have been more on the dictator side and more on the negative side of disruption and uh, trying to keep the status quo. So I guess, I'm sorry, the opposite of disruption, keeping the status quo is they were able to hold knowledge back from people. And I think that was the, and it was not an original thought at all, but that's what we saw when the internet started coming is it dispersed all this information. Uh, there was a really great economic study that was done showing how much ins- uh, car insurance prices dropped right around the time the internet came up, like a direct, very direct correlation to that. And that's because insurance agents couldn't hold that information behind them anymore. And so everybody could see all the prices of every other company because it was all online. So I, I just feel like that's what we've been building up to is this big disruption where people who have been marginalized, whether that's by race or, or gender identity or sexual orientation or, or whatever it happens to be, are going to start having more and more of a voice. And that's the disruption that's happening is those voices are coming out and it's starting to disrupt the voices that have always kind of held that power. So, yeah. yeah. Listen to what you just said, the thing that strikes me is that as people get their voice out there, then there's an opportunity to get to know more about the person. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, even deeper, you know, like whole communities. Um, then it's like as you begin to have the knowledge and the knowingness about that, then it allows a person to step out of the fear. So I see it as being a dialogue opener. Mm-hmm. Um, would, would you say that that's kind of like the purpose of the disruption is to open the dialogue between the spirit groups? That's Ooh. a possibility. I think yes, but I think I haven't ever put it in those words. But I, I yeah. I think that's definitely a part of like what my internal energy is. I do think a lot about, I mean, growing up in my family of origin, uh, there wasn't a lot of opening up dialogue. There was a lot of, you know, everything's good, everything's fine, that type of thing. And we didn't really talk about stuff. And I think that's a big part of the disruption is getting people to open up more, more of the dialogue. And there's a flip side to it too. Like, you know, if it's more accessible to amplify all voices, more accessible to maybe amplify voices that are, maybe not going to be as positive for world growth uh, and for human evolution. But overall, the more that we can be honest and not behind, hide behind those closed doors, the more I think we're going to move into a highly, more heavily evolved, more highly evolved human race, more highly evolved earth with more sustainability. And Karen's got so many beautiful words on it about, you know, clean water and access to healthcare and everybody has food and shelter and all basic human needs are met. And yeah, I think that dialogue opening is a huge part of that and the ability to amplify one's voice. Now, when I say amplify a voice, I of course mean pretty much just through audio. That's you know my main thing, but whether that's audio or writing or through painting or any type of creative act or through math or through science or anything that's creative, I think that's really important. Cool. Um, I agree with you on that. So uh, Mark, we're kind of putting close to the end of our time together. If I wanted to get a hold of you, what would be the best way to do that? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, there's really two great ways um, that make it super easy. Um, is you can just go to number3productions.com, and that's all spelled out. No hashtag, no numbers, N-U-M-B-E-R-T-H-R-E-P-R-O-D-U-C-T-I-O-N-S.com. It's kind of a long website, uh, but that's got all the information on social media, my booking calendars on there and such. And then my email address is just mark, M-A-R-K, at number3productions.com. 
and both of those ways are 95% of the, the links are, are in those places to get a hold of me in other ways as well. Cool. Thank you. So is there any particular wisdom that you'd like to share with people uh, before we sign off today? Well, I, I think I actually developed a little piece of wisdom for myself during our interview that I'm going to hold on to um, that you kind of helped uh -huh. bring out at me. Um, and so I'll, I'll end with that is that when you asked me about how I know or knew when the next step in that creative journey was, is just that it, it wasn't a knowing until I knew it. And it was this concept, this concept of I had to keep working and working and working until I knew it was time. So I think that's what I'm taking away from this is to do my best to continue to be in the moment in those times where I don't know, because there's going to be another time when I do know again. So trusting myself until I really, really can trust myself. Nice. Not only that, too, I mean, to me, it's the self-trusting that there is a real timing to think. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's not the right time to do it immediately. Right. Yeah. And that's my manifesting generator. I'm like, let's do it now. <laughs> and now that's not how, how life always works. So, yeah, that patience and trust. Cool. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time, and I really appreciate our conversation today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, baby. It was fun to talk to you and, and uh, do it in an interview. That's super fun. Thank you so much. Thank you.